In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place. This is the Daily Memphian Politics Podcast. I'm Bill Drees. Our main event is Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland on the race for mayor, the sales tax referendum, and crime. Top of the podcast, is it ever too hot to knock on doors in a summer campaign? Or is there a voter who can deny a candidate in the summer heat in the elements? Another question for the summer campaign, can a candidate do too much social media in place of getting out there and sweating for democracy? I await your answers. We record this on the day's second quarter campaign finance reports are due from contenders in the Memphis elections. A more thorough accounting to come on our next edition because many of these reports come in at the deadline or are in the mail at the deadline. Remember mail? With that, here goes. In just a bit, you will hear Strickland say his campaign has a war chest of around $1 million raised since his 2015 campaign ended in victory. By the report, his campaign has a balance of $917,500 at the end of June. He raised $172,225 for the quarter and spent $34,641, most of it $25,000 on campaign consultants and management. He began the second quarter with $779,916 in the bank. Still awaiting the reports of challengers Willie Harrington and Tammy Sawyer. Sawyer's campaign tells us she will report raising $64,339 for the second quarter for a first and second quarter total of $89,997. Still early in the paperwork, but a few dollar figures stand out in the city council races. District 6 incumbent Jerry Curry appointed to that seat this past January and running for the open Super District 8 position one seat raised $70,525 in the second quarter. After raising $120,000 in the first quarter, Chase Carlisle raised $15,315 in the second quarter in the Super District 9 position one race. That's how this can work for many council candidates, a big total in either the first or second quarter, take your pick, and then a lesser total in the other quarter. That was also the case with District 5 Council incumbent Worth Morgan. He raised $3,600 in quarter two, but had $115,209 from the first quarter. He had a closing second quarter balance of $117,798. In Super District 9, Position 3, the other council seat with no incumbent in Super District 9, Jeff Warren raised $45,406 in the second quarter to end June with a total war chest of $142,221. Warren posted $100,000 in the first quarter, with 54000 of that being a loan to himself. Rival position three contender Cody Fletcher, who moved from the position one race to position three, reported raising $11,830 in the second quarter, and he started with another $47,749 from the first quarter. At the end of the second quarter, Fletcher had a balance of $42,835. 
District 7 incumbent Berlin Boyd closed the second quarter with $79,851 in the bank, raising $8,050 for the quarter to go with $72,051 he had on hand from quarter one. Now, and who is running for what? We're just about a week from the July 18th filing deadline for qualifying petitions as we record this. The three major contenders for Memphis Mayor Strickland, Sawyer, and Harrington have filed with the Shelby County Election Commission. So have Pamela Moses, Leo Ogawat, and Robert Prince Mongo Hodges. That leaves nine contenders with petitions out for mayor with a week to file or sit out the summer. Tanya Cooper filing for Council District 3, Michael and Easter Thomas in District 7, and incumbent Division 3 City Court Judge Jane Chandler has filed for re-election. There are several prospective candidates, each with several petitions out for different spots on the ballot, waiting to see how this shakes out to find the race they think will be the best chance for them. And some of those contenders are now making their choices. Danielle Jones pulled petitions for all three positions in Super District 9 and settled that by filing for position two. David Vinciarelli has filed for city court clerk, meaning he will not file the petition he has out for Council Super District 8 Position 1. Marinda Alexandria Williams files for Super District 8 Position 2 instead of Council District 1. And George Dempsey Summers goes for city court clerk instead of Council District 5. Kathleen Allen and Charlie Birch, meanwhile, each pulling petitions after the fourth for all three positions in their respective Super Districts, Allen in Super District 8, Birch in Super District 9. A final caveat here, some of the petitions that have been filed then come up short of the necessary 25 signatures of voters who live in the district they want to run for or who live in Memphis if the candidate is running citywide. The Election Commission, which verifies those signatures, notifies candidates if they come up short, and the candidates do get a chance to go out and get some more signatures. With a week until filing deadline that is still doable, but time is getting close. The filing deadline for the Memphis races, again, noon, July 18th. Early voting is September 13th through the 28th, and Election Day in Memphis is October 3rd. We are joined now by Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland to talk about the race for mayor and probably some about the business of uh, City Hall. Mayor, first of all, uh, you filed your petition for re-election on July 5th. You made it official. Yeah, and I, I was surprised y'all didn't have breaking news that day because uh, that was very unexpected, I think. Well, we, we, we will remedy that. <laughs> uh, in, in the meantime, you have talked some about your fundraising because for those who are in the thick of this, this is the week on Wednesday, in fact, that the latest campaign finance reports are due. And this covers the second quarter of the year from April to the end of June. So what, what, what do you have to say about uh, the money part of this? I think the disclosures will show that um, we've had over 1,100 donors, uh, over 93% of them from Memphis and Shelby County, which I'm very proud of, and that the total raised uh, since the last election has been a little over a million dollars. And I'm very pleased with the broad cross-section of people all across this city. It's a huge number of people to give, and um, we're very pleased at that, and we still have three months to go. So does that mean that you're going to spend 
close to a million dollars in this campaign. Yes, because um, uh, I am term. I'd be term limited, and I, this is my last race ever. So we, just like a, a, a ball player, we're going to leave it all out on the field. And, uh, you know, for those who aren't involved in politics, uh, it's amazing how much it costs to communicate with voters. I'm trying to meet as many voters as I possibly can by going to community events and by going door to door. But in a city of 650,000 and, and 340 square miles, you just can't talk to every voter. So you have to do advertising on TV and radio and the internet now and uh, uh, direct mail. And that just costs money. Uh, four years ago, for instance, if you wanted a 30-second ad on the Channel 5 or 3 News, it cost $1,500 just for one spot. Uh, so it's expensive to do that. But um, you know, the best way to get somebody's vote is to look them in the eye, shake their hands, uh, but it's impossible to do that citywide. So you have the next best way is communicate uh, just like the professional advertisers do. Mm-hmm. The Coca-Colas, the FedExes, the Disney Worlds. Uh, what you, you see of them is through, um, through the media. And um, it costs money to do that. Well, and, and also the, the, the media advertising allows you to kind of build name recognition so that when you do go door to door, you can hit the points you want to make. In essence, the introduction you hope is already made by the time you get there. Uh, that is true. I, I, I mean, I pretty, I have right now. I have pretty high name recognition, uh, probably higher than I've ever had in my life. So, but it does communicate a message. Now, thirty seconds is not a lot. Uh, in fact, if you add it up, it's like sixty to seventy words. It's you know that's like a tweet almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not many words and you have to tell a story. Now we have enough money that we'll be able to do several ads, but I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was running for city council, I was going door to door for six months uh, leading up to the October race. And when we started doing TV ads, I don't know when we did it in August, it was amazing. When I knocked on doors, the recognition was so much higher. Uh, I know not a lot of people have unplugged now. They're not watching traditional TV. But the power of television is still amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the thirty-second spot, and if I'm if I'm correct, I've heard this from other candidates. They won't let you buy a sixty-second spot, will they? Or or, or is thirty-second kind of the currency of of campaign? I think it's the currency. I don't know if they won't let you do a sixty, but you only do thirty. Now, radio ads would be sixty seconds, but television is thirty seconds. I think it'd be unusual. Um, uh, to do a 60-second ad, but I'm not saying it's prohibited. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, there's been a recent addition to the October 3rd ballot. That is the referendum on a half-cent sales tax hike to restore benefits to police and firefighters that were cut by the city in 2014. What is your position on that? I don't have a position yet. Uh, uh, we've hired... Um, uh, the group that does our uh, financial analysis, and they are calculating how much would the half percent raise in revenue and what would be the cost um, to uh, change the pension, uh, do, uh, uh, allow spouses to be on the insurance, uh, and um, uh, the retire, pre-65 retiree health insurance, those three points just for police and fire, how much that would cost 
you know, now and over the next number of years, uh, they're in the midst of doing that. And then when they do figure it out, I don't want to take a position until I know the cost. Right. And and if if the voters approve this, um, then is it up to the mayor or is it written into the referendum specifically how the revenue is to be used for things like covering the spouse on the insurance? <laughs> it's actually yes to both those <laughs> and the council. Um, a sales tax referendum, and I learned this when I was doing the uh, – pre-K sales tax mm-hmm. referendum. Uh, a sales tax referendum is not mandatory. Um, you know, the, it sets out how you should spend it, but it's not mandatory. Uh, if I'm still mayor, I will f- follow the will of the people. Uh, so uh, we would build it into the budget and then um, uh, on those three employee matters. And the referendum says if there's any money extra money it would go i think to pre-k into paving roads um, so it would be my intent to follow the intent of the passage um, as much as we possibly can and then the council would have to vote on it it would just be it would be part of the budget presentation that we would make uh, next april all right Let, let's go back to the issue of of 2014 uh, or or part of the issue because as you know you were on the council at the time it, it was a, it this was an issue that had a lot of tentacles to it. Did the city's decision to cut those city benefits five years ago have a direct effect on the losses in police ranks that put the police department at under 2,000 officers when you took office in 2016? I think it did contribute to it. Uh, I think the biggest contributing factor to the reduction in the police force was the failure to recruit during those times. In 2014, if you'll remember, there was zero new police officers hired. And uh, I don't remember off the top of my head how many in 2015, but we've hired more police officers in the last two years than the prior six years combined. So that tells you, so the number one contributing factor, I believe, in the reduction in the police force was a failure to hire. But there is no doubt that the, um, uh, the change in benefits resulted in a higher number uh, of officers leaving than normal. I will say the good news is shortly after I got elected, we gotten down to 1,900 officers after being 10 years ago at 2,400. We're now over 2,000 officers. Later this year, we'll be at 2,100. Our goal is to be at 2,300 by the end of 2020. Uh, it's going to be hard, but we're committed to do it, and then we'll have to grow it beyond that. And and you've you've said that more police officers is is not the total answer to to the crime problem, but that it is a big part of it. Just the just the visibility and being able to do something other than run from call to call. Oh, absolutely, and the data shows it. Uh, you look at Memphis uh, uh, when I first got on the council, uh, which was twenty oh eight. We roughly had 2,000 officers. Um, we worked to get it up to 2,400. During that period, when we went from 2,000 to 2,400, the violent crime went, rate went down. Then in 2011, 2012, our high point in officers, it started going down in 2011. As the police officer complement went down, violent crime went up. We've crafted it and show it. And so there is a direct correlation between the number of police officers and violent crime. So I think that's one reason as we have are beginning to build, rebuild the police department. The data is showing a, a small reduction in violent crime. 
And um, I think that's one reason. But when we get it up to 2,300, 2,400 and beyond, um, I think you'll really see some impact. Mm-hmm. Last week during the council committee sessions, I believe that Michael Rawlings, the, the director of police, said that overall crime in the city was was down something like 6%, a little over 6%. Um, homicides, however, as, as you well know, are, are up compared to a year ago, but off of the record pace of of 2006. Um, and, and overall violent crimes, including homicides, down from a year ago. So should voters go by their, their feelings, whether they're safer or not, in deciding who to vote for in this election? Or do they just look at the numbers here? Well, I think it's a bigger thing than that. I think what they need to, uh, what I ask them to do is look at what we're trying to do. I don't think any person, reasonable person, believes that uh, that I was going to solve our decades-old crime problem in three years. And no voter I've talked to believe that. But when we talk about re, re, our, our crime, our public safety plan, rebuilding the police department, I've kind of outlined that. Going for stiffer sentences for violent criminals. Too often, 201 Poplar is a revolving door for violent criminals. We increased the penalties with the state legislature's help on domestic violence. We did it on the illegal use of guns. We tried to do it on uh, road rage shootings. We failed, but we're going to go back again next year. And we've seen what a problem that is in Memphis. Right now, uh, if somebody fires a gun into another car and no one's hurt, uh, uh, it's presumed that that person who committed aggravated assault would get probation and not jail. I think they ought to serve time in jail. Uh, third part, jobs. The more jobs we have, uh, the uh, the less likely they're committed crime. We're out there recruiting. Now it's twenty two thousand over 22,000 more people working now than three years ago. Given people second chances, we've helped 150 people expunge their record, and we have reentry programs for men and women now that we're getting, seeing success. I just met a man in City Hall today who went through our Manhood University program, graduated, and he's becoming a solid waste employee uh, this week. That was very uh, and and then try to intervene in the lives of young people because the true long term solution to crime is a young person picking the right path and not the wrong path. So we've reopened libraries on Fridays, which had been closed. Uh, two and a half times more children are taking part in library programming. Ninety percent more summer jobs for young people. Forty uh, percent more in our year-round program. Summer camps for free. Literacy programming in our summer camps. Uh, we just had a film. Fe- we had a film festival for young people. Our second annual one. We had our third annual um, talent show. We're trying to do more for young people in our community centers and our parks and our office of youth services because young people need something productive to do. And uh, I want more police officers, but we could have 2,500 police officers more than we've ever had in our, but we'll still have young people who are not getting good guidance and they need help. And that's what we're trying to do. If we do all these things, I think that's what the public wants to hear. And uh, I think I have a track record of success on doing all five of those points. Okay. You uh, you called for a Justice Department review of police department policies and practices. This was pretty soon after you after you took office in 2016. Um, and that was during the Obama administration. The review became something else during the Trump administration, more like a look at whether the police department had the support it needed. And instead of a review of policies like the use of deadly force and de-escalation. It, do you think there is a need to review police department policies that was the goal at at the outset? 
when 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 the Obama administration was in office? Uh, I don't remember that fully. I'd have to go back and read it. Uh, so I'm just going off of memory here, and I hate to do that. So I I, I don't really know the answer to that. I don't. Um, what what we need more than anything is more manpower. We have put more officers into the gang unit, and that was based on, if you remember, when Ray Kelly, the former New York police commissioner, came down. That was his big recommendation, put more. So between us and the sheriffs, we had roughly 12 officers in the gang unit. That's now over 60 uh, because so much of the crime is driven by uh, by gangs. And also we need more officers for more community policing and more Blue Crush. We have community policing and we have Blue Crush, but they're not fully operational until we can get back up to 23, 2400 officers. To me, those are the priorities in the police department. All right, uh, not not just numbers in, but but how those numbers are are, are used. Um, yeah, but but having more numbers gives you more manpower to be able to do more community policing. Right now, we have uh, we've had such a shortage of officers that we've had to go from call to call, as you mentioned earlier. So there's not as much time as you'd like to stop going to the convenience store, meet the people who work there, stop at the neighborhood park and talk with the kids there. We do some of it, mm-hmm. but we need more officers to be able to do more of it. And Blue Crush, too, which is where uh, uh, crime is increases in one neighborhood, and we put more resources into that neighborhood. Once we have more officers, and we're building back up, as I said, we're, we're going to hit 2,100 later this summer. Um, uh, less than a year ago, I, I think it was this past August, there was the federal court ruling about surveillance of, of protesters, and Judge McCullough ruled that that was a violation of a 1978 federal court consent decree. As I understand it, the city and the plaintiffs are now in court trying to work out some modifications to that consent decree. Um, uh, not that I know of. Um, what what I believe we're doing is the monitor is mo- literally monitoring what we're doing. Okay. We are abiding by the, the consent decree as best we can. There are questions that occasionally come up about uh, particular activities. The monitor uh, makes a ruling on that, and the plaintiffs are involved in those discussions. Uh, I do think we filed a, a motion or a petition to amend it to update the consent mm-hmm. decree, but I didn't think that was being actively pursued. I think what we wanted to see was how the monitoring would to go get, first. To get the first monitor's report in at least or under the belt. That's my impression. Okay. And and we, we should add that Ed Stanton, the former U.S. attorney who is, who is the monitor in this case, is holding the first uh, public hearing on this coming up later this week on July 11th, I, I believe. Um, back back to the surveillance. Do you think the police department overstepped in in that in a response to the bridge protest of July 2016? No, because the, the, the monitoring that violated the consent decree started before I even became mayor. Okay. So the standard practice among police departments across the country was to do what the Memphis Police Department was doing, which was monitoring social media posts. We're the only city in the country who happened to have this consent decree. So the standard practice across the country violated the consent decree. And uh, those actions happened well before the bridge protest and before I became mayor. Uh, So I think uh, the judge ruled that uh, those activities um, 
uh, violated the consent decree, and, and we're going to live by the judge's ruling. Okay. Um, what's your philosophy on the degree of control the mayor should exercise over the police department and its director? Because I, I think every mayor that, that I've covered had, has grappled with that to, to some degree. Maybe not long, but, but to some degree. Well, I'd say it's, it's the same with every division director that we have. Uh, I strongly believe you hire good people who are experts in what they do, and uh, you let them do their job. So I do not micromanage, uh, uh, nor would I be qualified to micromanage a police operation um, uh, or, or any kind of individual arrest. What, what I do is I uh, uh, meet with my police director uh, once or twice every week, talk to him multiple times a week about what's going on. Um, I will ask questions and prod on different areas. Um, I know the number one thing he wants me to help do is hire more police officers and, uh, and do, do these other things about intervening in the lives of young people and so forth. Uh, but I don't uh, micromanage uh, individual police operations just like I don't with uh, sewer operations. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, there are other races on the ballot, as we've mentioned. All 13 city council seats are, are up for election in this election cycle as well. How, how important is the composition of that council to what you want to do in a second term? Well, first of all, we'll, we will work with any city council that's elected. I do think overall the current city council is good, and we have a good relationship with them. And I think we've shown it in the three and a half years. I think my uh, working relationship with many of them when I was on the council has helped in that regard. Uh, But I'm confident that our team uh, can work with uh, um, any council member who's elected. And and it's been a pretty unusual run because when you were elected in two thousand in the two thousand seven elections to the council, that was the largest turnover of seats ever in the history of the mayor council form of government. Huh. Followed four years later by the largest return of incumbents in the history of of, of the council. <laughs> so so the council kind of kind of entered a new era starting in two thousand seven. I think so, um, and, and uh, most of them are all my friends, and I, uh, I think that council was a good council too. Um, but with uh, with term limits now, you're going to see much more regular turnover. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, how many uh, – there won't be that many council members who've been there longer than four years, I think, on the council uh, right after this election, right, but because you have the last of the 2007 folks are are coming off right. with this election, they're not running for re-election. So, so some some changes on already some changes on the body with four new council members yeah. in the last year. Yeah, and we had what three or four elected to countywide offices, so um, there was a natural change over there, and you know. Change is good. So, you know, everything changes. I'm sure every council back to 1968 thought their council was great, too. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I bet Fred Davis, you know, other than the strike, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. that, that was botched um, by, by city government. I think overall, you know, it'd be interesting to see what he says. Or if you talk to Jimmy Moore about his 
you know, council days, you know, everyone has a fondness for their own council. And I've gotten to know many former council members, but you know, change is good. Like I said, we have a good council. Now we'll work with whomever. If you're running for council, you really want to serve the people. And that's all we try to do. And we try to have a professional relationship with them uh, where I don't criticize other elected officials in public. If I have a disagreement, I'll just talk to them personally. And then you have to be ready to compromise. You can't get everything you want all the time. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll leave it there. Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland. This week on Behind the Headlines on WKNO Channel 10, a reporter's roundtable with Sam Hardiman of the Commercial Appeal, Toby Sells of the Memphis Flyer, and Karanja Ajanaku of the New Tri-State Defender joining us. Subscribe to The Daily Memphian at dailymemphian.com. You can subscribe to this podcast at Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Memphian, at B. Dries DM. I'm Bill Dries. The Daily Memphian Politics Podcast is produced by Natalie Van Gundy and comes to you on the OAM Network. In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com Truth in place.